You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everybody. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Evelyn from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my lovely co-host and friends, Dr. Carrie Obedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas and Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Um, And we were just talking that uh, Carrie has just returned from vacation and she said she had a great time, but she had an interesting hike while she was away. Tell us about that, Carrie. (laughs) It wasn't quite what you expected, huh, Carrie? No. I mean, so we went to Yosemite because um, we had like I've never been there before. And we went with um, another group of friends and and their family. So we all just kind of hung out together. And it's good because my friends are phenomenal planners and it worked out well because on prior prior vacations, we've all kind of collaborated and whatnot. And this vacation, my husband and I were swamped. And so our friends just kind of took over, um, which was delightful because they also have more hiking experience than we do. And if it had been stolen up to us, I'm pretty sure we would have died somewhere. Um, <laughs> so everybody in the family hiked on this trip, the whole family, every, the whole family, um, oh, wow. both families. So you've got four adults and then you have three small human beings, um, two five-year-olds and an eight-year-old. Ooh. And so we logged like 20 ish miles of hiking over the course of about five days or so. Oh my uh, goodness. Five, days. And so, so we saw a lot of uh, waterfalls, which in Yosemite are just absolutely gorgeous. And they are, they almost feel like gratuitous waterfalls because when you drive into the valley, you look around and you can just see them. Like mm. there's Yosemite falls. They're just there for the taking. You don't have to work for it all at all. And it's, it's <laughs> really amazing. And so, so we started off on an easy hike with that. Well, then uh, the next day we're like, okay, we're going to do a more ambitious one. And so we went to, um, we went up to one of the other trails and it's kind of steep and we go up and we get to the base of the waterfall and we decide we're going to go all the way to the top. Great. They've got all these crazy rocky stairs that look like, uh, one, one episode of vertigo and you're a goner. Um, yeah, that scared me a little bit. I have a fear of heights here. I'm just letting you know this. (laughs) Me too. That that would, I'd be the nervous Nelly in that one. So yeah. So you would probably not want to take this particular trail. So when we're at the bottom, there's a fork point and there's a couple of these guides, volunteers, they weren't rangers, um, but they were part of the Yosemite Conservancy group, I think. And so Mm -hmm. they said, you're going to go up this way. And then when you come down, don't come back down the same way you came up, go around on this other trail. It's, um, it's less steep. Yeah. It's less steep and it's about equal in, um, in length. And so you'll be fine. And I say, okay, we have small human beings. Oh yeah. You're going to be fine. (laughs) Great. So we go straight up. Everybody's fine. Nobody falls off a cliff. Great. Always a winner. That's always positive. Always a winner. We get to the top. We look at the falls. Beautiful, lovely, amazing, you know, uh, nature's work of art. So we said, okay, we're ready to go back down. So we follow instructions and we start to go on the around trail. Well, it's not it's not like you just start going down immediately. You hike up probably another at least 100 feet in, uh, excuse me, 500 feet in elevation on at you know one, noon, 1 p.m. on bald rock. So there is no shade anywhere. Yeah. And huh. it added, 
it, a minimum of a mile mm-hmm. beyond what we thought we were going to do. And so we ended up, um, we didn't like, we had enough water for the hike that we had planned, but taking this detour ended up because it was not as advertised. Like we had just enough water to get us through. Like the adults all kind of rationed a little out in, to favor the kids and started feeling like you're on an episode of survivor or something. A little bit like <laughs> all three kids melted down at one point. And we told them like, all right, you can only one person can melt down at a time. You need to take turns. Um, <laughs> and, and it, it functioned. Um, at one point, um, you know, one of them absolutely refused to keep walking downhill. Like he had done all of the uphill. <laughs> Your option is to go uphill kid. Like there's like all things that go up must come down. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. And he, I mean, and this was, this was like a really mild downhill, but he, yeah, it was just tired. We were really glad to be down at the bottom and everybody intact, but, um, but yeah, we, we logged some extra miles, but we also got to see, you know, deer and friendly little chipmunks and squirrels. And we saw a bear. Mean bison. No mean bison. I think that's more Yellowstone than Yosemite. Okay. Um, we saw a bear. Was it mean? Little bear, big bear. Uh, black, I mean, black bear. A, uh, black bear that was brown. Um, <laughs> um, he, you know, he was just having a, you know, late afternoon, early evening snack, uh, that was not us. And so <laughs> I was going to say, you didn't try and give him a snack or become his snack. Did you? No, no. So the last <laughs> time my husband was in Yosemite with his, his family, they had seen a bear and they walked towards the bear. And I'm like, no, no, we will not be doing any of this while no. I'm here. I do not want to become uh, a yogi snack. And mm. we just will, we will not. And so everybody stayed in the car and the bear was happily eating whatever he was eating, um, which was not a human being, not another hiker. Yeah. And, good. and it was good, but it was, it's, it is a gorgeous park. Like I have some really phenomenal pictures. And so did you have like set, like, did you have cell phone coverage? Like if something had happened, did you have cell phone coverage or? Not really. I mean, it, it was yeah. very, very spotty once we hit the park. Yeah, got in there. So where'd y'all stay? Did y'all stay at, like, did y'all camp? Did y'all stay at a hotel or? No, we 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 all really value showers. Um, <laughs> we did not camp. Um, we stayed at a house that was, you know, probably 20 minutes outside of the park that would fit all of us. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it was great, but. Um, but there were, there were some fun, fun moments. We took a little train ride as, uh, as part of it, just outside the park and the trees are phenomenal. Like, it seems weird. We took a vacation to go see trees. No, that doesn't seem we weird. We live in Vegas. We do live yeah. in Vegas. Yeah. 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 Yosemite's on my bucket list. That's one place I haven't been. And that's definitely on my bucket list to go. So well worth it. Well, yeah. worth it. well, very cool. Okay. So Susan, we have a few questions we're going to cover today. We do. We do. Okay. So I'm a th- 30, I am 33 and I've had three miscarriages after the second miscarriage did an RPL panel with no abnormal result results, slightly higher for clotting. So took estrogen and Lovenox during third pregnancy in, uh, then they progressed on, asked the RA to move forward with IVF and PGT and preparing. They did HSG and saline. And my husband did a semen analysis, which was all normal. First IVF cycles canceled on stem day seven as the follicles were not developing well. Um, they believed they only had three to four that had exceeded 10 by day seven. I'm struggling to understand the odds of success under IVF after responding poorly compared to trying an unmedicated cycle after having multiple miscarriages. Any advice on where the odds may be higher? Thank you. There's a couple of little odd things there. 
Yeah. So she has recurrent pregnancy loss and it sounds like she's gotten pregnant really easily. And then she stimulated for an IVF cycle, but at 33 didn't stimulate very well. Is that kind of, that's kind of what she said, right? Yeah. But I mean, they made a call on day seven because they only had three to four that were 10 millimeters. I'm like, you have somebody who has really small follicles, you know, if they start off two, three millimeters, and you're doing day seven and not trying to completely blow them out of the water. I mean, I don't know. I think that's kind of early to say. Yeah. Did she say what her AMH was? Uh, I don't think so. It's almost like they thought she had poor ovarian reserve and just said, oh, it's not going to work. But I agree. Yeah. If that was day seven, it, sometimes people even that have a really big quantity of eggs, sometimes they just start off slow and you just have to kind of ride it out and keep pushing them. So I wonder if maybe they knew her ovarian reserve was poor and that's why they called it so early, but I agree. I think that's a little early on day seven. I mean, I guess if her estrogen level hadn't risen at all, that that would be potentially a reason to call it. Yeah, that's true. But, but that's, um, but to answer the bigger question, you know, still, I think IVF is the quickest route to pregnancy and the most successful. If it were me personally, I would do a second, try a second cycle because you just never know. I mean, the first cycle, we learn something as physicians, we learn something on every cycle. And the first cycle may have been a fluke. I mean, the second cycle may do much different. So, I, you know, to answer the big question, I would say I would go for IVF again, because if you can, you know, even if you only get three or four eggs, sometimes in really young women, you can still have good fertilization and good development. And we're actually going to talk about that a little bit later on in the show. But um, if I were her, I would I would try it again. I'd try another cycle. Yeah, I think I would, too. And and there's I mean, there's more than one way to do a stem. A lot of times people tinker with what they see. And so your doc probably has some other um, some other protocol in mind. Yeah, um, I, I always say that IVF is not only therapeutic and that we're trying to get you pregnant, but it's also diagnostic. There's very rarely do I do a second cycle and I'm like, we're going to do exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. There's usually something I'm going to tinker with. So, and I think most RAs are going to be like that. Um, so, yeah. All right. Our next one is, would you recommend an ERA and receptiva test before a first time transfer? Or or do you typically do this if there has been a failed transfer? We're all going to take turns answering this because we all have different answers. Carrie, go first. (laughs) All right. So our statistician just sent us another article of um, uh, of the ERA that said this doesn't work. Um, and it was, you know, big, pretty decently sized study. And so, no, I probably wouldn't. I mean, I think there is potentially a population of patients who would benefit by this, but nobody knows who that is. And when they, they keep doing these studies and they show that there's no, no benefit to it, it's expensive and it's painful. So I probably wouldn't. In fact, I wouldn't. <laughs> not even probably. I would not do that. Abby, Abby what's your take? Um, I will say that as a general rule, probably most of the doctors in our office, we would not do it, certainly would not do it before you've never had a transfer. The only exception would be if you only have one embryo, we usually like to at least to talk, talk to patients about, you know, here's the option. Here's what we know about it. You know, I usually give them the web address or tell them to look it up on the web. And this goes for both the receptiva and the ERA. You know, see what you think. Um, but typically with the first transfer, I would never do either one of those ahead of time, particularly if there's more than one embryo. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm pretty much like that. I, I really don't do receptiva um, ERA. If you have only one embryo, um, then I would at least have the conversation about it. So, you know, it's it's one of those 
kind of case by case basis, but have a discussion, but not as a general rule. All right. And our yeah. last question for today is when will AMH rebound after a miscarriage at 12 weeks? I don't know. Does anybody know the true answer to that? Why would your why would your AMH change? I mean, well, what I would say is, I mean, we've definitely seen when people are on birth control pills, we've even had people that have come in to be egg donors and they're on birth control pills and their AMH is really low. And then they stop the birth control and the next month their AMH is better. So I just wonder if pregnancy may have some impact on it in that way. I, I don't know for sure if it does or it doesn't, but I could see where it might suppress your AMH um, if you're pregnant because it has the same effect as being on birth control pills. But I think that's this is one of those times where we have to make sure we're not treating a lab and not treating the patient. And that though your AMH, say before you had your miscarriage, you had an AMH of 2.5, okay? And then you have a miscarriage and you have an AMH of 1.2 and everybody's like, ooh, we're getting low. It, it We all know in our brains that, Nothing dramatically happened in those like four months <laughs> to your ovaries. And that realistically, when you're looking at miscarriage, your best chances of conceiving are in the first few months following a miscarriage, which ev gives even more credence of what I, I guess I don't really care what that is at that moment in time, as long as the one before it was reasonable. Yeah, and they're both normal. The values that you said are both normal. So you're right. Does it really, is it really clinical? Like on the lower end of normal versus smack dab, I feel warm and fuzzy, you know? And, and I mean, I, I see people who are referred to me and they're like, oh no, they have a low AM, you know, they have diminished ovarian reserve. And I'm like, yeah, you're at 1.2 and you're 37. That's probably pretty good for a 37 year old. Mm -hmm. And it's technically in the normal range, but we have to look at the big picture. So- just like everything else, don't lose, you know, the forest for the trees. Treat the patient, not the lab. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree. And and even when someone comes in with a legitimately, truly terrible AMH, most of us will still give it a try because I think all of us have seen babies, beautiful babies come out of really terrible labs. And, you know, statistics are great when you're talking about an entire population of, of people. But, you know, even if you have a 10%, 15%, whatever low percentage chance of having a baby. If you have that baby, you're going to have all of the baby, not 15% of it. And so it's <laughs> worth trying. It's kind of like you can't be a little bit pregnant. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like kind of pregnant just does not fly. So, well, very good. So today our topic is going to be the attrition of eggs and subsequently embryos in the IVF lab. I think we have all seen patients um, recently who are really surprised by really just how human pre reproduction works. We know biologically, not every egg is going to make a baby. And so we definitely see it in the IVF lab. And I think as a patient, it's really important to kind of know this and kind of have this in the back of your mind. Because for most patients, if we end up with two or three normal embryos, we're usually pretty happy. But we see a lot of patients that are really upset by that. So that's kind of what we're going to talk a little bit about today. So, um, Susan, you want to kind of start us off and tell us kind of what you tell your patients when they come in? And Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I like to kind of start off at the beginning and understanding that it, in, in the idea of IVF, you know, we're going to stimulate multiple follicles to grow at one time. And first of all, it's important for people to understand that we are not stimulating all the follicles you have. Okay. Cause sometimes patients are like, Oh no, I'm doing IVF. You're going to take all my eggs. 
And that isn't true. Essentially, your body decided two months ago which follicles were going to be the antral follicles. Those are the little bitty tiny circles we can see on your ovaries. And those are the ones that have the potential this cycle to grow into large follicles. So, And in theory, those follicles have an egg in them, right? So they contain an egg. Yes, exactly. And so your body decided what is your antral follicle count for this month, two months ago. Okay. And when we go through the stimulation, realize that most of those follicles are going to grow. Not all of the follicles are going to grow exactly at the same rate. And we know that your best chances of getting mature eggs, which are the ones that have the potential to um, accept a sperm, are going to be in the larger follicles. And now I'm going to punt it to large follicle girl, uh, Gary Vedian, (laughs) 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 because they have really good research about this to kind of go into that part a little bit more. So traditional IVF training is that by the time you get to typically about three follicles that are roughly 17, 18 millimeters in size, you trigger. And the traditional training to that, which has hung around pretty significantly on certainly on all the patient communication um, on the web um, and, and even with some, some providers as well, some physicians, um, the, that traditional thinking applies very well to fresh embryo transfers because if you let those follicles get a whole lot bigger, you are going to start to throw off the hormonal milieu that is very important when you're transferring an embryo. So when you're doing a fresh embryo transfer, you got to work with both the ovarian stimulation and the endometrial stimulation at the same time. And that is very different than when you're doing a frozen embryo transfer. And so now that frozen embryo transfers are really quite good, what we have found is that in, in the majority of cases, they're actually superior because you can separate out the eggs in the, the uterus and get the best out of both. And so um, that's, that's a whole separate episode. But where it leads to is that with a frozen embryo transfer, you no longer have to be quite as persnickety about what's happening hormonally with egg development. And so you can push those eggs to get bigger. So instead of having to, to trigger at three 18 millimeter follicles, you can push them out much further. And what the research that we've collected has said uh, after considerable grumbling by pretty much everybody involved in gathering this research, because it is a royal pain in the neck, um, really pain lower, but um, to gather is that you can push these eggs to 25, 28 millimeters and, and really even higher and still see good maturity and still see good embryo rates without losing anything. And so that means that particularly folks who have lower embryo counts or or we need to really optimize their egg counts because of genetic considerations or sperm considerations or what have you, we can grow those eggs so that we get a big group and and a smaller group and we translate them into an even bigger group and and an appropriate size group so we can get more eggs available. Carrie, I'm going to ask you something um, because this is something we all deal with. When we push those follicles out, do we expect sometimes we might lose a big one or two? So the data on that is a lot harder to pinpoint, um, potentially, but also not as much as you think. 
Um, because one of the things that we've watched, so our, our study groups cut off after about 28 millimeters. So once you were 28 millimeters in size and you were beyond that, we didn't distinguish it prior to that point. There were really narrow groups, 18 to 20, 20 to 22, you know, all the way up. And so what we're seeing is that we're getting a lot of really good eggs out of those 28 and bigger follicles. And, and it, that was previously assumed to be, oh, you're not going to get anything from those. Well, you actually do a large percentage of the time. But even if you do lose one or two of those big ones, it doesn't mean you're not going to get anything from the littler ones. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so that's part of the reason why we're looking for that sweet spot of saying, okay, if I can get these littler guys to, you know, 16, 17, 18, and my bigger guys are still going to be in the high 20s, that that may be a really good trade-off because yes, I, you know, I might lose one or two at the top end, but I still have the potential for really good eggs and I can get those smaller ones to a better size because one very consistent finding that we had was that those little guys just don't yield eggs in the same way the bigger guys do. Like if you, if you say you have to choose between a 14 and a 28, I'm going to choose a 28. Right. But you can make babies from eggs at a small follicle. You can make babies out of eggs of any size follicle as long as you get it mature. It's just those those little guys, they just are not mature nearly as often. And so your odds are lower because you're not you're not getting that maturity that you need. This is not so much nutrition in the lab, but one of the things I tell patients too is we try and grow most of the eggs at the same rate. Now, there may be a few that are a little bit bigger, a few that are a little bit smaller, but if we have one or two that are really big and a whole bunch that are smaller, at least I advise my patients, if you have the potential to get 15 or 20 eggs and we only think we're going to get two to four, we may want to cancel your cycle, regroup and start all over again. So I think one of the kind of roller coasters and IVF is you don't quite know for sure that everybody's going to make it to retrieval. And so there's kind of the ups and downs of that part of it. Ultimately, though, once we have a good big cohort of eggs, the patients get triggered. Then Susan, talk about sort of what's the next level of what can happen with those eggs when they come out. So first of all, when we do the egg retrieval, we're going to go into every follicle that we safely can. Okay, we don't sit there and say, oh, I'm only going to go into this one's too small. I'm not going to go in it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. We're going to go in every follicle that we safely can and safety wins. Okay, and so sometimes when we do an egg retrieval, we can't get all the eggs that are possible because people people have human variety. And so not all ovaries are accessible. Sometimes ovaries, um, there's adhesions from either things like endometriosis or pelvic inflammatory disease or a whole host of things you may not even know if you've, you've had. Um, and so sometimes ovaries aren't accessible. Sometimes your body habitus or your weight can have an impact in that as well. Um, ladies who have higher BMIs, it's, it's technically more challenging. Okay. But we're going to go into each of the follicles that we safely can. And we're going to, um, collect as many of those eggs as, as possible. And then they get handed over to the embryologist. Well, when the embryologist takes a look at them, um, they're going to help us figure out which eggs are mature and which eggs are not mature. And the reason why that's important is because the mature eggs are the ones that have the potential to be able to accept the sperm. 
then the eggs are um, exposed to sperm either through standard insemination or ICSI. ICSI is where we inject the best looking sperm into each egg. Standard insemination is eggs and sperm in a dish let the best sperm win. And then, then we have the overnight sleep. Yeah. <laughs> and Carrie, when you come into the lab the next morning and you're the embryologist looking at the embryos, what are you looking for? And how many of them are going to achieve that, that goal that you're hoping for? Sweet spot. So once the the egg and sperm come together and we have that overnight waiting period, um, when you come in the next morning, what the embryologists are looking for is how many of those um, eggs really accepted the sperm and and started the machinery for the next part of the process. So you're looking for um, what are called 2PNs, and that stands for two pronuclei, showing that you've got genetic material from the egg and genetic material from the sperm. And what you want to see is those two little kind of very faint circles right next to each other, um, <laughs> hugging up on each other. And you don't want more than that, and you don't want less than that. Um, now, when the embryologists look at this, they are they're looking at it. In a moment of time. So it's not like they're going to pull out that dish as soon as they walk in and they're going to keep it open, you know, up on the microscope in front of them for the next five hours. They're going to pull it out. They're going to look at it and they're going to put it back because you don't really want to have embryos hanging out, eggs, embryos, or anything in between hanging out in the lab at room temperature. You want them in your incubator with really tight control over the, the, the type of air that's being gassed in all of that. And so it's a single snapshot in time. It's a Polaroid, not a video. <laughs> and, and that makes a difference. And so that's part of the reason why when you see those 2 PNs and you see that there's some 3 PNs, 0 PNs, 1 PNs, whatever it may be, you're not just going to throw those away. You're going to keep them going because you want to give them an opportunity to work. And sometimes they will, but the majority of the time we're looking for 2 PNs and we see, I would say roughly 70% of mature eggs are going to become those two PNs. So sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, but. So what that also means is if you have 10 that are fertilized, three out of those 10 are going to already be out of the mix. And so mm-hmm. I, I'm copying Carrie because at one point she said it's like a funnel effect. And I've used this a lot with my patients now, Carrie, you, you start out with a good number of eggs, but just every step of the way, there's some drop off. Mm-hmm. And so that's really probably the first sort of the biggest drop off initially. And then Susan, what happens after the embryo, the day one embryo, we have it there in the dish. What do we do after that with the embryo and what happens in terms of its development? And actually, I'm going to interrupt super quickly about our terminology because that just got a whole lot more important. 2PNs aren't necessarily considered embryos because the genetic material hasn't combined yet. Oh, okay. And so it's, I mean, it's it's kind of in the middle there, but all of that just got, became a lot more important with uh, recent rulings. And so... Good point. Good point, Carrie. So we're going to throw <laughs> that in because, you know... Yes, we kind of can. We call it an embryo because it's easier, but that genetic material has not combined yet. Right. Sorry, Susan, go ahead. Oh, no, it's all good. Okay. And so I'm also going to give us a little um, nomenclature of what your embryologist may be talking to you. So day zero is the day of egg retrieval. Day one is the day that they tell you about fertilization. And then there's a little bit of variety on when people look at embryos next. So um, historically, we all used to look at embryos on day three. Some of us still Mm -hmm. do look at embryos on day three. Um, Some of us only, we keep everything in the the incubator, sorry, can't talk, um, until day five. Now, 
in, in our perfect world, we're going to have an embryo that's called a morula uh, or, or I'm sorry, a multi-cell embryo on day three, a morula on day four, and on day five, we'll have a beautiful expanded blastocyst. We hope. And um, <laughs> that does not always happen. And that is not going to happen to all of your embryos. If it does, that is a wonderful blessing, but it is not what would ever be expected. And each of those major phases of embryo development, we expect that not all embryos are going to kind of meet the cutoff. And unusually, and there's even times that you may have some that are falling behind. And we keep those embryos in the culture in our lab until day seven. Do you guys go out to day six or day seven? We go out to seven. We go to seven. Okay. So because sometimes you can have a morula on day five. And then by day seven, you've got an expanded blastocyst of good enough quality to be cryopreserved, transferred, biopsied, choose what you may. But you're going to lose some at each of those points. Now, when you look at kind of what I tell patients, when you look at an average egg retrieval, okay, not somebody who's PCOS and not somebody who has diminished ovarian reserve, okay, as a general rule, you know, you conservatively get between eight to 12 eggs. You may get more, you may get less, but this makes numbers easy. If you get eight to 12 eggs and then you get 10 that are fertilized, when we are looking at embryos that are getting to that expanded blastocyst stage, and at that stage, we can tell what part's going to become the baby and what part's going to become the placenta, we expect a third that fertilized to get to that advanced mm -hmm. stage. One third. So if you have 10, we're expecting three, not mm -hmm. 10. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And even I think with the patients with the best prognosis, I usually say two or three is my goal. If we get more, mm -hmm. that's great. But two or three is what human reproduction tells us we're probably going to get. But once we get to that stage, Carrie, why are we so excited? So once we get to that stage where we have a beautiful day five, six blast assist, then um the odds have gone up considerably. So the way that I think of this is that when you start, when you're sitting in your doctor's office saying, okay, we decided we're going to do IVF, you're at mile like one of a marathon. <laughs> um, because That's an it, excellent example. You've made it that far. And so someone hasn't said, no, no, you, you really can't do this. You got to go to donor. But um, you're, you're like mile one or two, the marathon. Well, by the time you get eggs out, you're like mile maybe eight or so because you got eggs. By the time you have blast assists, you are much deeper into that marathon. And so you're like mile 16 or so by that point. And then if you go on and you do genetic testing or PGTA and you get euploid embryos, meaning 46 chromosomes, no more, no less. At that point, you're like into like the 20th mile mark for for these embryos and for your IVF process. So you're not there. It's not a hundred percent, but you are a lot closer and it's much more likely that you're going to finish than even when you got eggs, when you're still only at mile eight, like a lot of people drop out of a marathon between mile eight and mile 26. Um, and so, so if you can get to that point, your odds go up considerably. Now there's still some loss points, meaning if you do genetic testing, then you may find that some of your embryos are not genetically normal. And, and those numbers are going to vary by age and they are 
higher than anyone gives them credit for, even in the under 35 group. Um, and so it is highly likely that even someone in the under 35 group is going to see an aneuploid embryo. That is not a reason to freak out and think, oh my God, I'm a genetic mutant. Um, it, that's normal. And that's part of the attrition that goes along. Um, and then of course you always have the attrition that comes along with thawing the embryo. And that's, that is a very small percentage, but it exists. So it's worth talking about where someone thaws the embryo and they say, you know what, the, this embryo didn't kickstart all of its metabolic processes again. And so it's, it's really not alive. And there was, a. Uh, a study done out of Japan that showed that when you look at embryos, it actually takes uh, a minimum of like five, six hours to really determine the viability of an embryo. Once it has been thawed, if you do it right away, embryos that look good actually in many cases are not. Um, so that was kind of an interesting study. So Susan, what would you say to somebody who maybe got 50 eggs at egg retrieval in terms of you know, they're probably thinking I'm going to have, you know, 50 embryos or at least, you know, a good 40 embryos. What would you tell them about that? And are there issues with extremes of egg number on either side? So, you know, you're talking about somebody who has 50 eggs. So it is highly unlikely that those 50 eggs are all going to be mature. We, we, when we have really high egg numbers, we do tend to have a much larger percentage of being immature. So if you end up with 10 to 15 eggs, I would expect like eight to 12 of those to be mature. Whereas if you get 50, uh, honestly, if you had half of those be mature, I would consider it a win. Okay. And, and so um, we also do see some issues that when we have exceptionally high quantities, and I think I do think the data is a little mixed on this because we see this with donors, but in people who are actually struggling with infertility, when we get high, high quantity, we sometimes do compromise some degree of quality and embryo mm -hmm. comp competence of how the metabolics work within those embryos during those five days. So... Um, you know, and, and I think that's a that's a that's a hard one to kind of take in sometimes is you start off with 50 eggs and you come back and you have three chromosomally normal embryos. The three of us are sitting there going, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the patient's like, what the hell? Yes. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But that but that's not an uncommon scenario, though, actually. I mean, it just it seems like there's a sweet spot for eggs, you know, maybe 15 to 25, somewhere in that range and much over that. Just overall, it seems like there's just not very good embryo development and, and ultimately patients don't end up with a whole lot more embryos in that situation. Yeah. So, Carrie, if you had to tell somebody that what's the one thing that you would say is the most important factor in terms of poor embryo development? What, what's the one thing that you say would make it really difficult for somebody to have a good chromosomally normal embryo at the end of IVF? You can pick two things because that would be a really hard thing. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm like flipping through the Rolodex and going, all right, what's going to be the most important? I mean, there's... Well, how about a 43-year-old versus a 25-year-old going through IVF? Okay, thank you for narrowing that down. <laughs> um, That's what I was thinking. Read my mind, Carrie. Read my mind. Yeah, um, uh, thanks, Professor. Um, so... Age is, is hugely important. I mean, if I have, if I've got somebody who's like you said, 43 versus 25, 
age makes a huge difference. If I have a, a 25 year old with just one embryo, I'm still like, all right, we, we have a really decent shot, a 43 year old with just one embryo, which a 43 year old with just one embryo is actually a really good position to be in, but it's still not the same level of, of security as a 25 year old with just one embryo, because there's a higher likelihood that even if it's euploid, there's still stuff that's not working out well, and it won't stick and go the distance. And I'm going to add in that, you know, we completely understand there's nothing we, we can do about age. Like there's no, we can't reverse time. Okay. We don't have Hermione's little time turner and we all wish we did, but of the things we tangibly can change that can have a big impact on how your IVF cycle turns out. The biggest, in my opinion, is obviously tobacco cessation. Yes. Okay. Because I I know every doctor you ever see tells you, you need to stop smoking, vaping, dipping, chewing, chewing. (laughs) but we've, we've got data to back it up. We've got data to back up why we think it's so bad. (laughs) It takes twice as many IVF cycles to get a nicotine user pregnant as compared to a non nicotine user. And we are including the guys in this. Okay. And so we, we are all really good at doing what we can do. That is the number one thing that you can do that can have a huge impact into your success rates. Absolutely. I mean, the one thing that it's, uh, that I talk to about patients is that when you are a tobacco user, that follicular fluid that, that surrounds your eggs, that your eggs are bathing in that is filled with the tobacco products. So if you would not bathe your baby in a pond full of cigarette butts, don't smoke. And, <laughs> and when you so that's have quite a visual carry, thank you. <laughs> a pond of cigarettes. It's intentional. And, yeah. and the same thing, like for, for the guys, the, all of the metabolites from the tobacco goes out through the urine. That sperm walks that exact same pathway. And so if you don't want your baby crawling through, uh, you know, a path littered with cigarette butts, let's stop smoking. And, and I'm not trying to be a, a jerk about it. It's just like, help us, help me to help you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also be sure to subscribe and leave, leave us a review on iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So hop on and leave us a like or a comment. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered on the Ask the Doc segment anonymously, so don't hold back. We also love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. We'll talk to y'all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.